it's more than just sex ed. It's everything from cradle to grave. It's who we are as people. Welcome to It's Not Human Sexuality, the show that goes beyond sexuality to reproductive health. Today, we're celebrating our entire podcast series by showcasing some of our best of clips. Back in 2017, reproductive biologist Betsy Cairo came to the college radio station KCSU looking for creative ways to share her reproductive health education message. That's where she met me, Hannah Copeland. We spent some time planning and decided to turn Betsy's reproductive health textbook into audio adventures through the human body for our first season. Joining us for our first day of recording all the way to today is co-host and sexuality educator Mandy Johnson. After season one, we all explored relationships through a reproductive health lens, a topic that was so big we made it our entire second season. And here we are in season three. We've opened up our format to include reproductive health expert guests from all over the world. Of course, you can go back and listen to any of these episodes on our podcast feed. Today, we're celebrating our 46th episode and the final episode of season three. Thanks for being here. So Mandy, this is gonna be an interesting episode because we're gonna do sort of the best of. We've been recording for about three years now, and today we're gonna take snippets from a few that we've selected that really resonated with us, but that doesn't mean that all the others weren't fantastic as well. It's hard to pick the the best ofs, to be honest. Yeah. But, but do you remember that time we recorded our very first episode? Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. That's when, that's when we met Hannah, our producer. It was, and I thought it would be really fun to start with the explanation of why this is called It's Not Human Sexuality and why we go with reproductive health instead of going with human sexuality like so many other educators do. Let's play the clip. I've noticed that you often mention that reproductive health is not human sexuality. Can you elaborate on that and why is that distinction important to you? Sure. Um, This distinction is critical because Growing up when I was young, we had the you know dreaded sex ed talk, and it was typically done by a PE teacher. It was typically done with gender segregation, which meant boys here, girls there. We covered you know things like uh, a girl's period, wet dreams for boys, and how to not get a sexually transmitted infection. And then of course we threw in some stuff about. Uh, you know, don't get pregnant. And this, you know, this is a while ago. I'm a lot older now and uh, decades have gone by and we're still doing the same thing. It hasn't evolved. It is actually devolved because we went through a whole episode of, you know, just just say no to sex. And, and the teachers got behind that. I mean, who wouldn't want to get behind that? You don't have to know anything. You don't have to say anything except don't have sex. So, you know, just say no to sex was pretty popular, but that didn't move us forward. And so the distinction between sex ed and reproductive health is huge because in reproductive health, this is an umbrella term that covers everything. We cover everything from the concept of sex and uh, assigned gender and gender identity, along with puberty and adolescence and anatomy and physiology and and you know we do cover we do cover contraception and sexually transmitted infections and diseases but that's just a small portion of it the other topics are just as important and probably carry more impact than just that so this distinction is critical i think people probably want to wonder why we're just so clear about the difference between reproductive health education and 
sexuality education. Yeah. And I, I love in that clip how you talk about, you know, the dreaded sex ed and how it really was just about periods and and segregation and, yeah, and getting breasts and boys getting erections. Yeah. And, I mean, it was at the most basic of basic here. You're, you're about to go through puberty. Here's what you can expect. And, it, and, and how it really hasn't changed, unfortunately, since then. Yeah. Um, and I'm pretty old. And so that's a lot of decades for things not to get better. Well, e even I feel that way. Like, man, I was in elementary school a long time ago. And when I got that segregated fifth grade talk of puberty, you know, like, but from what I understand, it still, it still hasn't changed. So I, I know it's one uh, of those things of we know better, so we do better. And so I think that's why in this clip, we explain that it's, it's more than just sex ed. It's everything from cradle to grave. It's who we are as people. It's definitely where we introduce the biological, psychological, and sociological components yes. of our curriculum. And for the listeners who would be starting out with this series, I think it's a really good place to start. So they're very clear as to why we always say reproductive health. Yeah. And just why we do what we do. Okay. Play another one, Andy. It's an interesting title. What does Look Both Ways mean? Look Both Ways was born out of an episode where I had just sat through an absence only until marriage uh, presentation. And at the end of the presentation, I said to the, the presenter, when your kids were little, did you only teach them to look one way before they crossed the street? And she said, no, of course not. And so at that very moment, for me, Look Both Ways was born because comprehensive reproductive health education talks about all aspects of being a sexual being, in addition to the other topics we talked about. But it also talks about abstinence. And so we want to teach our kids to look both ways before they step into that street, before they take a chance on finding out who they are as a person. We want to make sure that they've seen all of the oncoming traffic, not just one way. And that's where Look Both Ways came from. For me, this clip is always, I just like this clip because I, I just love this story. The very first time I met you, Betsy, I asked, what is Look Both Ways? Because you had a big giant banner and you told me this story and it's just something I've always, I will never forget it. Obviously, I became part of Look Both Ways and For everything. Sure. But, you know, the first time I heard it, it just made so much sense. And I just was like, man, that's that's smart. Like, <laughs> that's just, it's clever. It's smart. It, I just, and when I heard that clip, when I was listening to, to the episodes to figure out which ones I liked the best, I just heard that. And I thought, you know what, maybe it's just me because that's part of my history and how I met you and everything. But I just love that story. And I think it's powerful in why you do what you do and why we do what we do still. So. I, yeah, of course. I, I agree. I think it was really interesting because uh, Look Both Ways just came to mind because of that question that I asked the Since Only Until Marriage uh, presenter. Um, and I didn't really have a name for what I wanted to do. And I had told my staff at my for-profit company that uh, we're going to do this curriculum. And for right now, we're going to call it Look Both Ways. And they were, they're like, okay. And then when it came time to get a nonprofit standing and all of that, I said, okay, we have to come up with a name. And they said, well, what's wrong with look both ways? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, yeah, we'll just go with it. But the interesting thing about how that has evolved is in 2006, abstinence only education was so prevalent and it was always either abstinence only that you teach or you teach comprehensive. Mm -hmm. And people always thought that didn't include abstinence, right? right? And that's why we have to always say 
historically we'd have to say comprehensive reproductive health education including abstinence. Yes. <laughs> yeah including abstinence and now it's kind of evolved to be we're looking both ways in the concept of all the things that are coming to us in the street not just absence on the education but all the other things that are involved in that in that model so yeah it the name has i think grown with us and i'm i'm really happy about that yeah so the next clip that I want to talk about is when we interviewed a fellow I went to school with, Dave Woodman. Mm -hmm. And this one's titled, Gay Disney Artist Grows Up Mormon and Learns to Love Himself. And I think that the title just says it all, yeah. you know, because he imagined growing up in a small town, being gay, mm -hmm. and being Mormon. Yeah. So let's go to that first clip where he talks about suicide all the time. I mean, you can jump off a building if you're gay, because it's just really hard. It's It, it can be... Very, very difficult. Suicides are very common. You know, good things happen in my life, and I think, wow, I'm sure glad I didn't kill myself last week. I used to feel that way all the time. When I was in Alamosa, all the time. How am I going to pull my own plug? You know, it's, how am I going to do this? Which is a job. That's a big job. That's a hard job. And I couldn't really figure out a way to do it, that, that I could be successful. And I'm glad I figured out, wait a minute, I'm wasting my time thinking about suicide. I need to... Whenever I even go near that at all, I go somewhere else cause, because no one ever fell off a cliff who never went near one. And I re finally realized anytime I'm thinking about suicide, I'm not going to do it. I'm wasting my time. I'm not, it's hard. I don't want to go there. I don't want to. Why give everybody else their way by killing myself? I mean, that's just not right. Yeah, that was really great when he said that. Um, I think you and I were both, that was sort of... It was an aha moment. You yeah. Know? It's, and and it's, it's not, I don't think we're trying to minimize suicide in a concept of just don't think about it. That's right. not really what he was saying. No, but it's a powerful and simple thought that, and, and to me, it, it carries a lot of weight of lots of other things. Like it's who you surround yourself with. It's the thoughts you put into your head. It's what you watch on TV. I mean, all of that plays into mm -hmm. going near the cliff. For you sure. know what I mean? And yeah. so so it's a very simple way of saying like all the things you surround yourself and you think about and you put into your brain and the people you talk to and, and what you talk about, all of that plays into, you know, what, what you do and what you become, whether that's suicidal or not. I mean, there is so much power in in the idea of what you focus on is where you go. And, and the way he said that, I, I thought was just... I mean, I, I do remember it when we, when we, when he said that, we both looked at each other like, "Oh my goodness!" I is, know <gasps> that was amazing. It's just an aha and moment, I, you know, growing up same town and knowing him, and and then hearing his story and hearing how he went to Disney, and was quite talented and and well known, and still is. I think really that took a lot of resilience to just get to that point to say, "I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this anymore," because I'm all these cool things are still happening. And all of that, it's still real and it still happens. But his big portion was, you know, when we asked him, hey, how, what's your advice, you know, for mm -hmm. kids who are struggling? Because even though it's year 2021, you and I both know kids are still struggling. Oh, absolutely. They have unsupported families or whatever, or they're deep into, the, uh, they're being raised in a religion like he was raised in uh, the Mormon faith. And he said, you get out of there. Mm-hmm. You, you just, you got to leave. You gotta there, leave. you got to get out because it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. And you know, it's been a long week on Monday when uh, <laughs> Betsy calls it 2021 still. Oh, Shah. <laughs> Shah. 
Okay. <laughs> Play another one, Andy. The mindset and, and the clients that I've seen who have been struggling with eating disorders, very similar to addiction. It just sucks, like, because you can't quit food, right? And that's always been the hardest part is, like, you need food. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have it. So that relationship is always going to be tricky. So when you were like in high school and you were embracing this, I'm the girl with anorexia, I and, and you said that you were losing weight and everybody knew. So I assume also teachers and people, adults and stuff around you knew. What were they telling you and and what did you think like in your head? What did you think about their advice? Was it kind of a, yeah, whatever, okay. Um, or like how did that play into things for you? Yeah. So I was actually just talking about this the other day. I'm really surprised because um, I fell asleep in math class every day, sophomore year. And I don't know how like nothing, nobody ever like said anything. Um, I think that some people were very aware. Um, my friends were very aware. My parents were very aware and they were really trying their hardest. Unfortunately, I wasn't uh, sick enough, according to insurance, to go to treatment and so, you know, I, again, had lost my period. I, my fingers were blue. Um, I had hair growing in, you know, on, on my body, trying to keep me warm. My electrolytes were all messed up. My heart was not beating correctly. And um, insurance was like, oh, your BMI isn't low enough. So we're not going to cover treatment. Wow. And uh, that's why we shouldn't go off BMI. Seriously. Oh, BMI. Oh, uh, well, BMI thing. is trash. It yeah. is but, trash. It's the worst. Oh, it's, it's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah, but I, I think when adults and when my friends would say things to me, I thought they were lying. And that's where the body dysmorphia comes in, because in the mirror, I was not seeing what they were seeing. So it's it's it, you knew you had an eating disorder. It wasn't about that. You just didn't believe them when they told you you're so skinny. You don't need to lose any more weight. Right. I was like, no, like I'm not like I can keep pushing it. For me, I wasn't like 80 pounds needing a feeding tube so for to me like I wasn't that sick in my head and now we know that like eating disorders can be dangerous no matter what you look like but were you ever taught anything about eating disorders or body image or anything in school yeah you know it, a lot of what um I remember reading a book from the library um I can't remember the name of it but on the front of it there is a picture of a girl with her finger in her mouth and on the flip side was a skeleton and it was the story about a girl with bulimia um and I remember that book very specifically um and I don't remember learning a lot about eating disorders in in school so that one was the episode with Melanie Greenberg who's a a sexuality therapist and a friend of mine from Widener University when I was getting my degree. Mm -hmm. And she was sharing her experience with eating disorders. And I think it's really interesting stuff that she has to say. When I was going through episodes and, and picking ones out for this, you know, this episode with Melanie Greenberg really stood out to me because it just shows the power of, of education in reproductive mm -hmm. health and all angles of reproductive health because you know, so many, so many young people suffer with eating disorders and aren't taught anything about it. And and what they are taught about it is the extremes. And so, mm -hmm. you know, like Melanie said, she didn't think she was sick enough. She wasn't 80 pounds and needing a feeding right. tube. So it wasn't a big deal. But, you know, with education, young people can learn the dangers of, of eating disorders, even at the beginning stages. And, and, even mm -hmm. before you get to the hospital. And to me, that one was very powerful in, in why it's so important to educate. 
which of course is something we cover in our curriculum. Ha, huh? just yes. a little plug in there. But the other thing I think people don't understand about eating disorders is that it is not about food. It's about the psychology of their what they're seeing, the dysmorphic. The dysmorphia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other part is, is that most people, teachers, friends, parents, will look the other way. Because parents might be thinking, I see this, I think it'll level itself out. And then when they figure out it might not, then, you know, now we're going to get involved. Teachers maybe just don't want to get into to get into it. And friends start can help feed that disorder. That's no pun intended. You're looking so by good. saying you look so good. Mm-hmm. And then society validates it by exchanging the word thin for fit. Yeah. Okay. And we know that those two are not. Well, and, and it, it doesn't, I mean, almost anybody who loses some weight will get, for whatever reason they're losing the weight, will get the comments of, you're looking so good. Yeah. And it, and it definitely is one of those. It, like you said, no pun intended, but it, it feeds, feeds it. it. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and she was very clear about that, insightful. I've had people who have listened to this episode who have contacted me, friends that I went to high school with, and said they cried during this episode because it was them. Yeah. Whether they were um, binge eaters and maybe had, were overweight or they their weight yo-yoed because they would go into bouts of anorexia. So yeah. it, it resonates with a lot of people. It does. It's a, it's a real problem. So let's hear the next clip. Consent obviously is first and foremost when you're contracting for any kind of relational pieces. And when we're talking about BDSM kink, it's really important. Um, where it gets tricky is that there's the consent that you give beforehand and there's the consent that you give in the moment. And if there's any aspect of consensual non-consent in your play, which there often is when there's dominance and submission or there's pain play, then it's really important that you have a way to communicate both verbally and non-verbally in the moment about where your consent is really at and that you and your play partner or your partner know each other well enough to really understand those cues. And part of the risk that's there is that those cues might get missed or you might push yourself past those edges because you're in subspace or you were really great and then suddenly you're not and that didn't get communicated really quickly. So like you said, Betsy, knowing yourself, being able to really be mindful and track for yourself, am I consenting in this moment? Do I really want this? Am I enjoying this? Am I able to stay embodied and in touch with myself is an important tool in being able to then be able to communicate that to your partner or partners. Oh yeah, that's great. Which brings me to the basal level of word play, such as safe words. Am I getting that right? Or is that yeah. still mm-hmm. exist? Yeah, or? safe words and gestures still absolutely exist. Um, or oftentimes we're using more of a stoplight system of like red, yellow, or green for where you're at. But the reality is that if your only options are safe word, which is pulling the ripcord, we're done with this, or keep going, that doesn't leave a lot of space in between. So I'm really wanting people to 
develop a communication with their partner or partners that fleshes out that yellow zone, fleshes out that yes, but, or slow down or um, shift over here kind of feeling. So, um, so again, for some people that can remain verbal through the scene. Um, and for other people, whether they're gagged or not, the verbal is really hard to access when they're in that space with each other. And so being able to read each other's micro cues, being able to understand for themselves where they're at and not go so deeply into subspace or top space that they're not able to make contact with that so that they can express those nuanced middle zones, not just the safe word ripcord expression. And in that concept, we're talking, um, are we talking more about uh, someone who might be in the submissive position uh, and is receiving? Because in my mind, dominance, they may have limits too of how far they want to take something and they're not that it crosses their safe boundary of I don't want to maybe inflict that much pain or take you to that level. I They're not comfortable with it. Yeah, usually that's who is getting talked about the most. And it's also who's getting talked about the most in terms of subspace, which is a phrase I used earlier. And so if you're not familiar, subspace is the place you enter into when your neurotransmitters really wash over you and you drop deeply into your body, but in some ways also out of your body in terms of you're not in your executive functioning anymore. Um, and so it's known that when you're in that subspace, you are not probably going to be able to say some complex sentence like, uh, please move a little bit to the left or squeeze a little <laughs> bit less hard, right? You're, you've got to have some other way of speaking. But what's less well known, and oftentimes people who've been in the BDSM community for a long time don't know this, that top space is equally relevant and that top space is where a dominant or somebody who is, um, you know, the person who is in charge of the scene and the play also goes into a place where they are not 100% cognizant in their executive function for where they're at. So they can go too far for themselves or the other person without it being something that they were intending on a logical level to do. And they can also have top drop afterwards, just like a sub can have sub drop. And that means that feeling of being drained after a scene is over, after heavy play is over. And they may need some top care, just like someone might need bottom care in terms of what's going to get you back to feeling grounded, present in your body, nourished, getting those electrolytes, getting that emotional security and connection. Um, and so some of the education I often do with partners is when I see that someone hasn't known that they're having top drop and hasn't known that they too need aftercare, hasn't known that they're going past their edge with their partner in inflicting more pain than they want to inflict. Um, and so once that's highlighted that that can happen for them too, it can be really empowering that both people or all people in a scene, it's really important that they're able to communicate where they're at and to understand where they're at. I selected this episode, the one BDSM, Kink, and Vanilla 2, where we interviewed Indigo Stray Conger, because she deals as a licensed marriage and family therapist, she deals with consensual non-monogamy and a lot of kink play. And we get to this word that she was talking about, and the word is consent. Mm -hmm. And you know how in our classroom we're always saying consent matters, consent matters, consent matters. And she and we and I kind of give her a definition of what consent means to me. And she goes, "Yeah," she said. I think sure that that can work, but in the BDSM community, or when you're getting into that type of play, it can shift. Yes. What I really liked is uh, she talked about consent before the fact and consent in the moment because uh -huh. it's 
two different times that consent is important. It's not just before you get into it. It's right. also during. I mean, right. and that's true whether you're BDSM or you're vanilla or whatever kind of sex right. you're having. Like if you even just want to change positions, that's, yeah. a, that's a new, do you want to? Yeah, I mean, that's a new you know, question. Yeah, yeah. for so sure. I, I loved that that was part of what she, and of course, because in BDSM play, it's so extra important. Right. What I also think about this is that she uses the word subspace and um, there's also top space. So in that regard, you're talking about submission or dominance. And while that's not generally in the consent arena, the subspace is where the person who is maybe receiving pain goes into a space where they might push the envelope of what they, what they want to receive. And so then when the play is over, they have to come out of that subspace to, uh, you know, for aftercare. Mm-hmm. But she says a lot of people forget that top space can be just as traumatizing because the person who's in subspace who wants to go further might push the boundaries right. of the dominant participant of where they want to take that, right? right? And so want. the aftercare is important as well. And I think all of that does revolve around consent, but how it is very, it's a very dynamic agreement that changes. Right. And I, and I also liked the talk about the idea of consent being verbal and nonverbal because right. especially in BDSM play, there might be times when you're bound and gagged or mm-hmm. something in a way that you can't verbally express and mm-hmm. you can't use hand signals mm-hmm. per se, but you have, you still have to be able to let the other person know that, mm-hmm. you know, it's not okay. And I, but I think that's also an important piece of what I'm just going to, again, call vanilla play mm-hmm. for, for the average person is realizing that there's a lot of um, subtle body language cues that people give that say, I'm not into this anymore, mm-hmm. that other people ignore on a regular <laughs> basis, you know. And, and it's, of course, also the responsibility of the person who's not into it to to say something. But Like, I'm not into like it. Like, I'm not into this. But, yeah. you know, just realizing that no matter where you're at, what kind of sex you're having, you can be aware of other people's body language, even if they're not verbally expressing things, you know, if checking in, checking in, you know, if body language doesn't look right, say, Hey, are you still enjoying this? Is this something you're wanting to do? Um, because yeah. And you know, it's important whether you're BDSM or you're vanilla or you're anybody just in between trying to have sex with people. Right. And that's interesting because I would always pose the question to my students. I'd say, if you are now physically engaged in having sex with this person and they suddenly say, stop, I'm done, I don't, I don't want to continue, what, is, what should your response be? And I'll give you a hint. It's not, well, give me a minute. I'm almost done. That's not the correct <laughs> response. And so... Just the typical response. Yeah. It's just, yeah. And, it's, and that's not okay. So I would say you stop you disengage, you get dressed, and probably it may or may not be a good time to have a conversation around it, but it might be, and you have to be open to either episode, right? But eventually it does have to be discussed of what transpired here. And I think that was one of the biggest takeaways from this episode of the BDSM kink was the communication Mm -hmm. around this play that must be in place for it to be successful. Yeah. And that communication really should be in everybody's sexual Exactly. And I think that that's our point is this is a take-home message 
this is a one size fits all. You can yeah. use this anywhere. Absolutely. Okay, play the next one, Betsy. You had talked about how your dad was on death row in Canyon City and you went to visit him every Sunday. And was mm -hmm. this before you told everybody what had happened? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody right. knew. Nobody right. knew. And I'll tell you what my, you know, you have the proverbial last dinner. And uh, so we had our, our last dinner. And uh, my dad, as we were walking out after we said our goodbyes, my dad said, Diana, can you come over here for a minute? And first of all, my, my, my first feeling was one of panic because I didn't want to be alone with him. And then I remembered that there's a guard in the room and, and it's okay. And what he said to me is, try not to let what I did to you affect the rest of your life. That's all he said. And to me, it was, I guess that was his way of apologizing. But all I could think was, are you kidding me? It affects every moment of every day of my life. And it, it my, his, his, his voice was in my head and directed all of the things that I did and how I interacted. And, and so that's the only thing he said to me. But we went every Sunday. And one of the best things my oldest brother told me, because he's the one that took us every, every Sunday, was he said, had I known any of this, we wouldn't have gone to see dad. And that really helped me. That really helped me because he was on my side. Yeah. They just didn't know. So. Absolutely. But you did and you still went. He was our father. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, and I talk about this when I do my talks. It's, it's crazy. But that was the only way we could have some semblance of normalcy. Think of, think of COVID right now and how everything has changed. And we just crave the normalcy, right? When my mother was gone and my favorite little brothers and sisters uh, were gone, uh, I, was, I was their acting mom for all purposes. I was, uh, out of 10 kids, there were three girls and the one, the baby was, uh, was one of the girls. So my sister and I took care of the other ones. You know, and that was a time when the guys did all the outside work and the, the females did all the inside work. And so the two youngest were like my babies. And so they were taken away and my mom was taken away. And but when we went to the to, when we went to the prison every Sunday, we'd talk about schoolwork and this and that. And I took my boyfriend that I was dating in high school to meet him and and things like that, because that was some kind of normalcy. That's all I can say. You know, we drove down every Sunday and the how, the car, well, a lot of times we were singing and stuff, but a lot of times everybody was just lost in their own, own heads and thoughts about the whole thing. We both picked this episode. You yeah, know, this we just is, picked different yep, clips from it. This is How to Live a Joyful and Colorful Life Despite Sexual Abuse and Trauma with Diane Kissel. My mom. Yeah, who's your mom. And she was a, an incredibly moving interview. Yeah. We both read her book. A turquoise life, and well, you tell the story about what happened to her. Well, I mean, in the in the most basic gist of it is that she was molested by her father from from age five to thirteen, and when he thought he was going to get caught, he he started murdering the whole family because he thought it would be better for everybody to be dead than to be exposed, I guess. And so, but he he only managed to 
kill a few instead of the whole family. And so there are survivors, of course, because my mom is here. And and I mean, that's the most basic nutshell of the story. There's so much more to it. But it's a very powerful, very powerful story of resilience and, and right. overcoming things. and But also just a powerful story of loss and suffering and trauma. That she just rose above, you know, and what is interesting about this is that she had indicated that his plan was to murder his family and then kill himself, mm-hmm. but then he couldn't kill himself, but yeah. and s- ended up uh, on death row in Canyon City. And so the remaining children that he had would visit him every Sunday. Nobody knew. Even at this point, her remaining siblings did not know she had been molested by him for eight years. Yeah. And she did, though. And she talks about how they would go visit him in Canyon City every Sunday. And, you know, I think we asked her something like, well, how did you do that? She goes, well, nobody knew. And I said, but you did, and you still went. And she said, well, he was my father. Yeah. And, and and my whole life, what I've always heard from her when she, you know, it's the same thing she said on the on the podcast that day is that it was the only, we needed a sense of normalcy. Yeah. Everything had changed in one night, and they just needed something, someone, somewhere to be normal. And, and not that it's normal to go see your dad in prison, but to have him in your life, I guess, is the closest thing to normal they had at that point. It's bizarre. It, it's always been a hard thing to, you know, makes you like, huh, really? That, hmm. Yeah. And then she goes on to say that when, I think it was after he was executed, that she told everybody. Mm-hmm. And her brother was we would shocked. Have never gone to see him if I'd have known that. Yeah, he, she said we would have never gone to see him if we had known that, and so that was validating for her. But I still wonder on the flip side of that. We never asked her the flip side of that. How did that make them feel? You know, like oh my gosh, like she said, he got to die with the love of his children around him, yeah. and she was okay with that. They didn't get angry until after the fact, for sure. Well, and it just is a testament to how big of a person she is it's the it's the darn truth for sure big heart and you picked you picked another clip i did so the the clip that i picked was just it, it's again and just another you know the personal connection this is obviously my mom <laughs> but it was the story of of when i learned how babies were made <laughs> one of the things i also remember that I I truly believe impacted so much of who I am was learning where babies come from when I was a very little girl. And and that was also a purposeful decision on your end. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Absolutely. It absolutely was. Well, I think it was JJ that asked me where babies came from. And I thought, so I found that wonderful book. Where did I come from? Where did I come from? Yeah, I still read that to my students every semester. You were, you were three years old. You were three years old. And, uh, um, I just gathered you all on the bed, and I said, some of this you will understand and some you won't. But it's important because this is, you know, about our bodies. And so we read the book, and nobody else said too much afterwards. We asked a couple questions, but nobody said too much. But about a day later, you and I were in the car, and you said, Mommy, if a lady was walking down the street and an egg fell out and she picked it up, would there be a baby inside? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I tried not to laugh. I tried not to laugh. And I'd say, 
And I just had to, because so I knew that you were just thinking of all this stuff, you know, yeah. about those eggs being up there. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I just had to explain it wasn't that kind of an egg and, and, and whatever. But, <laughs> but I always wanted to talk openly about sex. And, and hopefully I talked to you also about that, that nobody gets to touch your body. Only, only that body is yours and, and, and nobody else can touch your body. It's not okay if anybody else touches your body, unless you say so. This story plays a ton into who I am and, and why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. You know, finding out at, at age three that <laughs> how, how babies are actually made. And, and my mom has always told the little story of my, my question about the egg a few days later that, you know, she knows I was thinking about it. And of all her kids, she read that story to four of us and only I had questions later, <laughs> you know. And so it, it to me that it's a flash forward. What do you call it in a book? Uh, uh, a preface? No. When you when you get a C. Premonition? On. Kind of. That's not the word I'm looking for. But yeah, okay. you know, it's that, that kind of thing, that that premonition of. Oh, oh predestiny. Some, eh, there's another word Does I can't start think with of. a P. <laughs> I know. I gotta know. <laughs> uh, it's foreshadowing. I maybe I already said there it. You it go. is foreshadowing. Um, yeah, but you know, just a predictive. <laughs> well, I told you it's like that. It's just not that word. <laughs> but but that is the clip that I picked out because I think it goes a long way to explain you know just who I am and why I do what I do and. And that of all my siblings, I'm the one that wanted to go into sex education. And let's talk about sex all day long. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. And your mom is so proud of you for that, right? Oh, she yeah. is. Very yeah. Much, yeah. Mine just told people I was a college professor because they didn't want anybody to know I owed a cryo bank and taught reproductive health. Because <laughs> being a professor, just they didn't ask what in, you know. My oh, she teaches like, a, she's a sex class. educator. She talks about <laughs> sex. She teaches sex to teens. <laughs> And that is admirable, for sure. <laughs> well, it's been a lot of fun revisiting some of these some of these episodes, and I know that the future is up in the air right now, Betsy. It is. And part of the reason we decided to do this episode is because our producer, Hannah Copeland, has been offered a fantastic opportunity with NPR. Go, Hannah. Go, Hannah. She'll be working on Morning Edition. Morning Edition and All Things Considered. And that's a big deal. So she'll be moving to D.C. Yeah, we're going to miss her here. We are. So, but kind of secretly what I'm hoping is that she'll be bored at night and still want to do these podcasts from dc so all right all right they're probably right i'm not gonna get bored because i have all this blooper material that betsy and mandy don't even know about like take 729 (laughs) i was gonna take a nap and retire god god is it is it tomorrow yet the betsy and mandy show Okay. Well, thanks for doing that, even with, you know, being in pain. (laughs) And here today, we have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Olivia. (laughs) Okay. I'm just going to say my own name. You're going to, that's it. I put my hands in the air when I said that. Oh, nice. Good for you. Let's do a countdown. Three, (laughs) two, one.
two, one. Mandy never knows when to talk. Oh, <laughs> the mic went away. Uh-oh. www.lookbothways.us. This is Dr. B. This is not Dr. B. Well, okay. Ready to analyze? Yeah, go for it. Analysis. Did you learn anything? Yeah. I learned a ton. I learned a ton too. All right, back to the episode. We will miss you. We have grown together. We have uh, cut our teeth on this. And you are the reason why we sound so great, why we got organized, got our act together, taught us about scripts, gave us great tips on equipment. Yeah, we, we, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing without Hannah. No, nope, sure. we wouldn't. We're going to miss you. Yes. Thank you. I'll miss you too. I'll probably make horrible <laughs> sexual mistakes without your guidance. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> that would be really disappointing. I, I can't. I can't deny that because we've for three so years much. you've listened to our podcast, and you would think if anybody learned anything, it would have been you. <laughs> um, if we can't even teach Hannah, <laughs> I have learned an immense amount about podcasting and sexuality and reproductive health from this podcast. It's been a dream. Yeah. So thank you too. You're welcome. And our listeners should know that we're we're unclear about our future as yep. of right now. And we're not yep. sure what we're gonna do without Hannah if we're gonna continue or if this is going to be okay, our last episode. It. So I guess you'll just they'll just have to stay tuned and when it pops up on their feed they'll go they're back. Wait and see. Yeah. <laughs> Wait and see. This podcast was created to promote Look Both Ways in the textbook written by Dr. Cairo. Look Both Ways is a nonprofit organization based in Loveland, Colorado, with a mission to educate our youth about their reproductive health to make informed decisions for their future. We do this by educating the educators through professional development, and we also put on free conferences for both teens and parents of teens. Textbooks used at schools are donated by Look Both Ways to eliminate the money obstacle for schools interested in piloting or adopting our curriculum and textbook. As a nonprofit, we're always fundraising and accepting donations. For more information about Look Both Ways, our fundraising efforts, getting a textbook donated to you, or to make a donation, please visit lookbothways.us. That's L-O-O-K-B-O-T-H-W-A-Y-S dot U-S. This podcast was produced by Peach Islander Productions in Fort Collins, Colorado. This is Mandy Johnson and Dr. B wishing you well. Be sure and catch all our episodes of It's Not Human Sexuality on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fire away, matey. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I knew it. I knew it. It was so silly. <laughs> uh, don't we say Randy? Randy, Randy. Randy. Let's get Randy. That was a good clip, too. There were so many to choose from. I could have done a synopsis on all of them. Yeah. yeah. All right. Be all right. safe. Thank safe you so travels. much. Love right. you. All right. Love you, too. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.